You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the web website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au please stick around for this week's elephant rider boot camp and we have a cracking dumbo of the week coming up before we get started everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Apartment building defects have largely disappeared from the front pages of our newspapers and while a lot has been happening behind the scenes, in reality, so far not a great deal has changed in terms of the end user. We're worried that since the market has taken off again, more buyers are active, many of them first home buyers, FOMO has returned and they're forgetting all about the risks of buying brand new and off the plan in their haste to get onto the property ladder. So we want to keep the conversation alive. A report examining building defects in residential multi-owned properties was released mid last year in which 3,227 defects across 212 buildings in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland were analysed. The results were alarming and I quote, 85% of all the buildings analysed had at least one defect across multiple locations. And what does that mean? We're going to find out today. Based on this report, we could draw the conclusion that New South Wales is the riskiest state in which to buy a new apartment. A whopping 97% of buildings included in the report had at least one defect in more than one place. Victoria looks positively glowing by comparison at 74% and Queensland follows at 71%. And while 212 buildings might be a significant sample size, that number is a drop in the bucket in terms of the amount of people impacted by poorly constructed buildings. In this episode, we picked the brains of the author of this report, Dr Nicole Johnson. Nicole is a senior lecturer in the Department of Finance in Deakin Business School and a socio-legal researcher focusing on multiple aspects of multi-owned properties at strata title, condominium and apartments, including governance, conflicts of interests and legal relationships. And what a chat we're going to have today. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I've been looking forward to this because due to your distance, uh, not being in Sydney, we've had to do this at five o'clock during the week when you're here. So thank you for coming in. Pleasure. I think in terms of your research, um, what kind of got you to start this kind of journey Um, And what was the catalyst to to kick it off? Yeah, so we've been talking about building defects in the sort of the strata sector, if you will, for many years. I've been researching in this area for nearly 12 years now, Mm -hmm. and it's been a topic of discussion at every conference or forum that I have attended over that period of time. And what started to become very apparent to me is that the conversation, we kept on with this, this conversation, but there was very little research that we could look at to find out really what the prevalence of building defects were in this particular property type, you know, what type of defects. So to be able to look at what type of defects are actually impacting the end user the most and really looking at what is the role of the regulatory environment and also the role of government in dealing with these issues. 
So I started out looking, you know, further afield globally, really, to see what research had been undertaken so that we could sort of learn some lessons, I suppose, from other jurisdictions, because we know that building defects is not unique to Australia, although it's becoming very evident from what we've seen coming out in this report in the media. But we know other other countries as well are really badly impacted. We know about the leaky building crisis in New Zealand. Singapore's got issues. It, it, It is everywhere in the world. So... I was looking further afield to see, well, what insights that we could gain um, and and found very little, to be quite frank, as far as yep. research is concerned. And even domestically, looking at what you know other universities and what other academics are doing in the space, and again found when it comes to defects in this particular property type, so mainly apartment buildings, mm-hmm. that there was really little to go on. And so I was really concerned that we have this huge, um, you know, property environment here in Australia with lots of apartments. It's the fastest growing property type in this country and will continue to do so. And I was very concerned about what was impacting the end user. So that was really the catalyst um, for the research. And why do you think there was, I think I might know the answer, but why (laughs) do you think there's really no research put into this problem? Um, And why do you think that, you know, no one really wants to look at it, I guess? Yes, so doing research in this area is very, very difficult and very complex. So finding the data, good quality data, to know what's going on in these buildings, to analyse that data and to actually make sense of it is really, really difficult. And for me, I'm not a construction expert. That wasn't my area of expertise when I started this research project. Mm. I had to be well and truly schooled in the built environment (laughs) and Mm. and what the different elements and, and the complexities of this property type. And which I did. I wanted to undertake that journey. I'm a I'm a I'm mm. a learner at heart. You know, I wanted to to learn these things, and so it was really important for me to then um, you know look to see well, okay, well, why have why hasn't this been undertaken before? And I, it was it became very evident to me very early on that getting good data on these buildings and what the defects were about is very difficult to mm. obtain. And so I was actually quite fortunate that. Um, you know, I've got a good network of people. I was, you know, I went around, knocked on a lot of doors um, and asked people for this data that I thought was really, you know, we're at a time that we needed, we need the information to really get a better handle on what those sorts of defects really were that were impacting upon this built form. So um, that's, that's where it sort of started, I think. And yeah, you know, two years down the track from when I started, I can understand why people actually haven't gone through mm. the journey. It's, I've read the report and I couldn't wait. <laughs> it's sad, isn't it? Um, and it was very interesting, that whole uh, beginning, really, where you go through the methodology and um, how all the data is because is, you've got quantitative and qualitative, so a lot of interviews. And I'd like to talk about that sort of next, but the quantitative stuff, so this is the, the data-driven stuff, right? You've really then gone to building um, uh inspectors effectively and gone and sifted through all their reports, right? And then, of course, if they don't have consistent methodologies or consistent formats, you've had to go and find some level of, you know, what's the word do you even use? I mean, you know, some commonality, yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, common ground. Yeah, and and this was, you know, and I think this is a really important point and the way that I've drafted um, the report and I hope that, you know, I've got it out there. It's accessible for everyone and I want people mm. to feel, you know, yep. free to be able to get a copy of it. And we'll not put the feel, link in the show and, notes. Yeah. And not feel nervous about reading it because I hope that I've drafted it in a way that it is still um, academic. So there's yep. still some real, you know, very clear yep. ways that I've gone through the gone through the research. 
but I hope that I've tailored it and I've drafted it in a way that it is actually a nice read for people that are interested in it this area. It is easy to read. And I wanted, and I wanted <laughs> yeah. it to be clear about, you know, what journey the research took to get to that mm. end point because I think too often we read research um, reports either from marketing people or even from academia where you actually don't know where the information is coming mm. from and I think it's important for anyone reading this to really understand it. So, yeah, so thank you for that. I'm glad, you know, that was the whole point that the difficulty was in getting these reports is there's no standard template. Mm. And so, and there's lots of information missing. And it's certainly a limitation in the study because you get all this and these reports, they're written in a narrative form. Yeah. So you've got builders, architects, engineers, perhaps it's very difficult to know who the inspectors actually are for the companies yep. going out on site. And again, you don't know whether they are just doing observations, so mm. they're just going through the building floor by floor looking for those defects to report or whether they're doing any invasive type of testing to see mm. what's hidden behind the walls because that is one of the issues. Yeah. What's behind the walls um, we can't see yeah. and until there's some sort of destructive uh, testing or the whole fabric of the building starts to build down, you sometimes don't know mm. what these sort of latent defects are that are sitting behind there until you have an intervening event like water penetration, water coming through your building, mm -hmm. or a fire, for example, mm. when then those sorts of things are exposed. So getting back to the reporting then, so we don't know who did these. We know that, you know, we, we had criteria around the companies that we sought the information mm. from, yep. um, but we don't know exactly the methodology they employed undertaking this particular, um, you know, process going through the buildings. So these reports come about, just to give you a bit more of a background in relation to how this works, is either in an owner's corporation or a body corporate, an issue will arise. And often it's after perhaps the first big rain event mm. where water is starting to mm. come into the building so that they know that there's a water ingress issue in yeah. the building. Yeah. And so they'll go to the owner's corporation or the body corporate and the next step usually if you've got a manager in place will be to get an investigative report to, mm. to commission one of these um, building inspectors uh, to come on site and give the body corporate or the owners corporation a report about their defects. Yeah. Alternatively, what we're seeing more and more, which is really great to see, is really good management companies are, as a matter of course, in the first few years of the life of a scheme, giving advice to the owners corporation or body corporate to actually undertake that inspection. Yeah. Mm. And so that's the, that's the information that I got. Um, but, of course, as I said, it was in narrative form. Mm. So yeah. then you have to extract that information from these reports and sort it in a way that you can analyse from a quantitative perspective mm -hmm. and to Glorious. make sense and to make sense of what's going on. Mm. So that was a very labour-intensive um, process, as you can imagine. Now, I, I'm interested also in the definition of defect um, because, you know, I think that was quite mentioned many times is it's basically one... Thing happening in more than one spot. So it could be very, very minor, it could be catastrophic, really. Correct. So, yeah, can you share with us? Yeah, so I think this is, again, one of the real, I call it a research hurdle <laughs> because yep. mm. until you know what you're identifying or what, you know, what the definition is of the, the breakdown in that particular element, it's very difficult to do the research. And so um, construction experts think about defects very differently to the yep. law. So mm. each state has legislation and in that legislation it provides a definition of what a defect is. In some states they differentiate between 
major and minor defects mm. or structural and non-structural defects, but every state's very different mm. thanks to the federal system that we have. It makes all this stuff around property much more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And so when the lawyers are actually litigating this and they're going through the court system or the tribunal system, then they are looking at the legal definition of the defect. So when they're looking at these reports, they're making a determination in relation to, well, what does the law say is a defect mm. and then what you can pursue as mm. far as any litigation is concerned. Yep. From a construction point of view, however, they think of it very differently and in the report I've got a very broad definition. It's sort of, you know, looking at any sort of failing in any system or element mm. or statutory or user function within a building. So it's much more broader than what mm. a lawyer would be. And then, of course, you've got the end user in all this, yeah. the person who lives in the apartment and their definition or how they see a defect in their building, mm. again, is very different. Yeah. And we can't dismiss that mm. because a broken door handle or a chipped tile for someone buying into a new new building, mm. yeah, that's important. Acceptable. Yeah. It is. And and so for other people that are dealing with this at a sort of a you know bigger level, they're dismissing those sorts mm -hmm. of defects. But I think it's important to still say, well, we've got all these mainly minor defects that are probably easier to resolve than some of these more complex structural or, you know, waterproofing, fire-related defects um, that most of it are, t are talking about as far as the need to reform and so forth. So that's, you know, that's part of this, all this working out, well, what, what are we talking about mm. when we're talking about a defect? And also, how does that differentiate between a lack of maintenance or repair work mm. yeah. by the owner's corporation or the body corporate or the lot owner? Although you're... you're uh, report or your um, research was limited to properties that have been inspected within the statutory period, though, right? That's so there's right. a fairly short period of time. Like, what would what sort of period of time would you think that? Would yeah. Be? So again, every state's different. Mm. But this is again the mm. complexity of it. So in, in a state like Victoria, you've got a ten year period. Mm. In New South Wales, there's changing. It depends. If there's a two year and a six year, mm. and then in in a state like Queensland, there's six years and seven months. Yeah. Um. But again, depending on the type of defect, so there's all these little complexities. Um, around when you can, when that limitation period actually expires. Yep. And so, yeah, so my research was very focused on new builds, that front end, what's going on when the developer and builder are responsible for um, rectifying those sorts of defects as opposed to what happens down the track. Mm. But, of course, the conversation with developers and builders often is around, especially in the later period, so mm. in those sort of five, six, seven-year mark, depending on the state you're in, is more around well, it hasn't been maintained and repaired properly. Yeah. And so then that muddies the waters yeah. in relation to this whole debate around building defects. So in terms of you're in the industry and you've spoken to a lot of people and your report's part of that industry, how big have, do you think the problem really is? Do you think that your sample size is a good reflection on the industry? Um, and have, I guess, the industry really just kind of come back and said, well, you've only done 200 properties you know, there's 20,000, you know, buildings, you know, have they kind of tried to cut you down due to it only being 200 buildings? No, not at all. And I'm very frank in the report and any time I'm speaking that this is a pilot project. This was a starter. Mm. And so, you know, by no, no means I'm saying that these results should be generalisable. Um, they shouldn't be. Mm. It is a This is the sample. It's a sample of 212 buildings. Um, but I think, I think our starting point should always be that I think all buildings have defects. 
Um, and you know that's a, that's pretty much a given. And and mm. I and I think you know that's just part of the building process that you're going to yeah. have a few defects in the buildings. Everyone has to accept that. That's not really the issue here. The issue is the these more systemic complex yeah. defects that are going to impact upon perhaps the safety and the lives of the people that reside within that yeah. we need to turn our attention to. And also from what I've picked up was how the defects are dealt with, you know, because I think that's that came out loud and clear that it's the process around, you know, an individual owner or the owner's corporation that has to go through in order to get rectification, some of the games that can be played that was some of what you shone the light on there was rather alarming, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, and I think that's the real, that's the, you know, the hard part. And that's why I did this research is because when I look, any research that I do in this area is very much focused on the end user. I'm interested in what impacts the people that reside yeah. in mm. these buildings. All my research, regardless of the building defect work, is concentrated around that. Yeah. So I'm very, very concerned about what happens there. So it was really important for me to have the conversation with owners and other people that are experiencing th this particular problem to see, well, what is actually happening? You know, what? how long are you waiting for these to be fixed? Mm. What is the process that you're going through? Um, and what are the sort of issues that you have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis mm. before this actually happens? And to highlight a few, you know, it seems to be a very common practice that the builder will come back in that sort of very early period to fix you know, these sort of minor defects. They'll mm. fix, the, fix the chip tile, they'll fix the paintwork, they'll fix the door, you know, that's a bit broken, that sort of thing. Mm. They'll fix those sort of small or, or, or more minor defects mm. fairly quickly. When it becomes very apparent that there are more complex defects, yep. what commonly seem, seems to happen is then the time period is being pushed out. Mm. So, you know, the conversations are, you know, we're getting there, we want another report done, yep. you know, and then... Inevitably, what we're seeing in one of the problems um, that has been, you know, outlined in the report and the research is this issue where um, the builder or the developer will have a solo purpose or a sole purpose company that's created for that particular mm -hmm. um, site. And then, of course, once all the units are sold um, and all the profits are then mm. <laughs> drained back to wherever, mm. um, you know, there's that liquidation process happens and then you don't have anyone to sue. Yeah, And so it's all about timing for mm. the end user and that owner's corporation or body corporate to make sure that they're on the front foot and get legal advice earlier rather than later to protect their rights, to keep an eye on what's going on here mm. um, so that they don't end up in real protracted litigation for years where then, you know, more and more people, more trades are being involved in the litigation mm -hmm. process that actually then extends the time for, for um, end users. And then, you know, so many people said to me that are on committees that are working really hard, that are doing amazing jobs dealing with these really complex mm. defects um, issues. Um, it's just, it's hard work. They're volunteers. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, they're doing it for the collective and there's usually a very small group doing it for the collective, yeah. listening to the voices of all these yeah. other people, trying to make the right decisions in a very, very complicated area. And, you know, so many have said to me, we lose sleep. The stress levels are For high. Sure. You know, I had a number of, you know, lovely men that I spoke to that were in their mid-60s. They'd be businessmen. Yeah. And they said, you know, sometimes, Nicole, we just sit on the couch at the end of the day and just have to, you know, have a little cry yep. um, about having to deal with this issue. And they can't sell out. They're stuck doing yeah. it. And yep. They just have to stand up. And that's, that's the crushing part of this story. Mm. Well, I mm. think a lot of the problem you might have found that a lot of the apartments are actually owned by investors. They're not actually owned by person living in the apartment. So 
the the renters are just signing a one year lease. They come in, they do see defects or there's problems. They end up they just leave at the end of the lease if they can afford to, or they unfortunately have to stay because they can't afford to rent to actually rent something else. Yeah. And so a lot of the investors aren't really that you know they they've got other things going on, right? They're not that involved with the building. They don't see it every day. So a lot of them are just going to be absent and they're just going to let someone else deal with it. Have you found that's been a lot of the big well, problems? Well, that is right. So it, it go always, but in any type of um, issue to do with these sorts of buildings, that's always the scenario that plays out where you've got a small group of people that are becoming more active. You've mm. got a lot of apathy in these sorts of um, mm. environments because it is a really complex area. It's a complex area of law. Mm. And you're asking people that just want to live in their apartment yeah. or have their investment to stand up and be part of a, quite a complex governance arrangement. Mm. And so, you know, I don't blame them for not wanting to be involved in it. Who would want to? But yeah. someone has to stand up. Yep. And you always get this small group of people that do stand up because they have to. It's a requirement that there's a committee that's formed and yep. the committee has to do something. And so, you know, I do feel very, you know, very much for those. Uh, investors often get involved, of course, when the big levy comes. Yeah. And um, <laughs> because, you know, they have to fix their defects mm. and, you know, it it's a very expensive, um, yep. um, you know, journey down the defects um, route. And so oftentimes, you know, a very large levy has to be, you know, put back on each of the owners and that's when you start to get probably the investors mm -hmm. coming to the fore. But in relation to the tenants, and this is a really important point because it's a story that's not told a lot in this whole area of building defects. And I, and it's, it's very important to tell the story because so many times, and I've seen it play out time and time again, where you'll have a tenant move into the lovely new apartment, mm. often with families. Yep. They're, of, you know, p potentially of a particular socioeconomic group. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it costs a lot to get the bond together. Mm. Yep. In in these urban areas like Sydney and Melbourne, rents are very, very expensive. Yep. They've had to pay to move in there. Mm -hmm. And if after that first, often it's about water, so after that big first rain event, yep. the water's coming through. Um, and then... They're down the end of the actual chain as far as responsibility is concerned because they will then talk to the property manager. Yep. The property manager goes to the owner. The owner has to go to the owner's corporation. <laughs> the owner's corporation then goes to the building or developer. Yep. And that takes a long time if it mm. ever gets rectified. And so the poor tenant is left in this apartment yep. with water damage everywhere, oftentimes issues around biotoxins, so I'm talking about mould, yep. that are that can have huge health impacts on families. Mm -hmm. They're stuck there. They can't leave because mm. they obviously can't afford to leave yep. or they don't know their rights well enough to be able to do anything about it. Yep. And so we're seeing this play out more and more where you've got tenants that are living in these apartments that have mould in them. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. And sometimes the mould is unseen. This you might see new. a little patch. And it's yeah. brand new. And brand new. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm you know, very concerned particularly about people that are in those tenancy arrangements because they are the last in the line as far yep. as having a voice to enable that to be rectified. And everyone's just going to pass the buck, right? Because the property manager is going to say, well, I've told the vendor. Then the vendor is just going to yeah. say, well, I've told the owner's corporation. Yeah. And the owner's corporation is going to say, well, we've lodged something with the builder. Like, yeah. And it's just no one's actually going to take ownership. And yeah. so, and even if they know that that's the chain, yeah. because sometimes owners go, well, I don't know what to do. I don't mm. think it's my responsibility. I, I don't know the water's coming from somewhere else in the building. Mm. Sometimes they're very unaware that they're part of an owner's corporation. Yeah. And so <laughs> it, it just delays everything, finding out who's responsible or they'll do patchworking. So they'll come mm. in, they'll get the exit mould, squirt, squirt. Mm. Let's do a little rub down. Let's do a bit of patching. Doesn't help the situation yeah. at all. Yeah. 
Um, and then, you know, and this and this is what this is what's getting, I think, played out quite a bit. I was actually surprised that water was less than fifty percent of defects, to be quite frank. But I know that there's the ongoing there's the secondary um problems that come from a you know, a, a faulty membrane or yes. um leaks. Yes. But also so that's sort of one thing. I, you know, I because I know that water's actually a nightmare. <laughs> Nearly every balcony actually has to get re waterproofed in pretty much every development. It's just, everyone you talk mm. to, oh yeah, the balconies have been redone. But it's also about the the actual strata manager, isn't it? I mean, because there's a, an issue there with how the manager is appointed, appointed in the first place, and historically there's been some muddiness around that. But also how equipped they are with the knowledge around what to do here because, you know, managing a, an old 40-year-old three-storey red brick walk-up versus a brand-new complex mm. with all these things starting to manifest, they're two very different things, aren't they? Absolutely. And so first with the first part of the question about the water, so although in the report it does highlight that most defects um, are centred around the building cladding and fabric construction element within a building, which yep. to the listeners is a bit complicated, <laughs> but I'll try and break it down. So what we were seeing was that most defects were found in either the, say, the plasterboard or the masonry mm. or the, the lining of your apartment right. or the lining of the building. Okay, mm. so you're building fabric and cladding. Mm. And so that's where the build, the defect was found. Now, those defects are often related to water. Mm. Okay. And so what they are what I can would call resulting defects. So it may be that the membrane has ruptured or there's a problem with the membrane. Mm. There's no flashing around the windows and the doors. Mm. It's coming from the roof perhaps because oftentimes that's the, you know, the last part of the building. So it's a bit of a slap happiness up on up on the <laughs> yeah. top there. Probably the most so important thing. Pr- probably lots of defects. So and wind can push rain under roofs as right. well. I found that the other night. <laughs> and so water is really insidious. Mm. It moves through the building. Mm. Path of least resistance. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's looking always for places to go. And so that's why you're seeing so much more damage from water-related mm. ingress in the actual building fabric itself. Yep. So really at the end of the day, we can I think we can safely say that probably water-related defects mm-hmm. is the number one issue. Yeah. And so um and one of the most costly to mm. fix because ripping up the tiles on a balcony and fixing up the membrane, if you've got a big balcony and you've got a balcony on every single lot in your building, it is a very expensive yep. Yep. thing. And also, of course, bathrooms. We always yep. know when we re- renovate bathrooms and kitchens, very expensive. So I know yep. of a lot of buildings <laughs> where the bathroom's being ripped up, all the tiles, everything has yep. to be ripped out to fix the membrane underneath and put it all back. Yeah. Very, very, very costly endeavour if you've got defects relating to water. And and when you're, you you mentioned earlier about you've got to fund that defect rectification because then you've usually quite often got a legal battle on your hands or you've at least got to put together a claim for the insurance if there is insurance. Rarely, um, rarely, there, rarely there is in big yeah, buildings. Yeah, and yeah. let's talk about that more. But I, also the idea I think that quite a lot of people think when they're buying into Strata that they are covered by insurance, and we've talked about this many times, yeah. is mm. perception. But the very fact is that even if you are, you're probably going to have to fund it before you get your claim. That's and, right. And then the claim's potentially only a percentage of what actually is expended yeah. anyway. So home and just having home and contents insurance is not going to help you in this situation. No. Mm. And so we don't have insurance that covers these bigger buildings that are over three storeys. There is some mechanism for, for, for smaller buildings. 
for, but for these bigger buildings, there is no avenue to go down. So the person you have to go after is the builder and developer in mm. relation to these issues. And as mm. I said, if they've gone, if there's no one to sue, you are required under the law mm. in every state to rectify and maintain your building. Yeah. And so the onus then goes back onto the owner's corporation to undertake this. Yeah. They have to do it and then they might have to try and find someone to sue, but they have a statutory obligation. Yeah. They Number are responsible for this. And so that sort of muddies the waters And a what's the statutory period? You said like in Victoria it's 10 years, in New South Wales either two years or yep. six years and he's changing and Queensland six years and seven months or something, you said. Um, what does that mean exactly? So that means basically that that is the liability period for the person that's responsible for the build. Right. And so you have that period of time in which you need to commence proceedings against that person yeah. to rectify. So we have it in all areas of law. It might mm. be a dispute in relation to a contract or it might be in relation mm. to criminal matters. Yep. There's all these liability periods where yep. people, mm. um, you know, have these, you know, obligations for it. You can't, people don't have obligations to fix things forever. No. You know, yeah. There has to be a limitation in law. And yep. so each state has created their own limitation yep. periods in relation to this particular issue. So it's a litigation deadline. Correct. And so <laughs> if you haven't started it yep. by that date, mm. then you, you're you out of time. You're, gone. you're yeah. out of time. So Victoria is the best state to buy off the plan. Well, <laughs> potentially, yeah. And this is one of the things about, well, what is the best time frame that we're talking about here? And so... Oh, when does it start? Does it start from when they broke ground or does it start from when it's finished? That's a very good question. Mm. <laughs> so maybe not quote me on this. Yeah. I think it's... I, I think it may vary. Mm. I'm not quite sure. So maybe cut this two out years. Some buildings that take two years to yeah, build. Yeah, I think yeah. it's sometimes when it could be about when the element comes in or when the construction's finished. I'm just yeah. not quite yeah, sure okay. in relation to that. But I think a lot of people would think that, you know, it's all the new buildings. I don't want off the plan, so I won't buy one of those. But, you know, this building's been around for five to ten years um, and there's nothing in the contract. No the strata report seems fine if there is one and it's done well. <laughs> But they look at that and then they still think they're okay and the building's five years old. A lot of these issues can pop up down the line, can't they? Ab and then the, the statutory period's basically avoided oh. anyway. Absolutely. So you do have to be very careful. So, I mean, whenever you're buying into uh, these sorts of properties, you need to spend the time doing the due diligence. Mm. You need to make sure that you are looking at the records because oftentimes in the records of the owner's corporation, which any purchaser actually does have a right to inspect and should inspect, so either they get their solicitor to do that on their mm. behalf or they have an actual agent. There's agents in now, now in nearly every state that will go in to the owner's corporation and do a full inspection of these records. Mm. And if you're able to get your hands on the communication, you should be able to <laughs> yes. see, which is a bit questionable sometimes. It is yeah. often but, questionable. But you should be able to see in in the notes or in the reports whether there has been issues in relation to building defects. Yep. Um, but in any event, if I was buying in there, I would be getting someone to go in and do a, a bit more of a building inspection inspection. Yeah. Um, really I've, hard thing to do in a big building. Very, big, very hard to do yeah. in a very big building. Yeah. Very mm. big hard to do in a big building. And the problem is there are some things that are more apparent. So water, you know, I think by probably the year six or seven, you would have had a number of rain events. So yeah. you would have a bit of an understanding where the water's coming through there. What is, what is not so 
um, what is more difficult to find is mm. if you've got some problems in some of the passive fire systems within the building. Mm. Yeah, now this is actually something that I was a bit alarmed about when I read your report. And I've spoken to a few people who says, oh, no, you know, I don't think that that's such an issue. But, yeah, well, I can tell by looking at your face. Po- listeners, you can't see Nicole's face, yes. but I can. <laughs> Do tell. Yeah, yeah, so I think this this to me is is probably the most concerning in a way. Mm. What do we see? So we see the water coming mm. through and because it's, you know, if you're in your if you're in your living room and water is coming through and you can see it coming through your walls, you know, immediate action is yeah. taken in relation yeah. to that regardless of how the li- liability or the litigation rolls mm. out. You can see it, it it needs to be fixed because it's impacting upon your daily yeah. livability yeah. within yeah. your apartment. Some of the fire safety systems you don't know about until there's a fire mm. and it starts mm. to break down and you're not yep. safe safe in your building. Mm. So and what are we talking about? We're talking about those collars and, yeah. and, and seals basically. So the two big things that I'm most, most concerned about is the collars that are around pipes. So pipes are going up all through the building. There's yep. lots and lots of pipes. Mm. And to ensure that if a fire starts, for example, in the garage or in an electrical cupboard in the garage, to ensure that that fire is contained within that area so that the fireys can come and put it out really quickly. There are all types of different types of fire suppression mechanisms that are put into these sorts of buildings to stop the Mm. fire moving. Mm. And so what we see time and time again, and I have inspected buildings, I've gone in there when you go into these rooms and you Mm. look up and you can see right up through the building. So the fire Mm. collars that go around Ah, these plumbing conduits are not there. And so... That is a real concern. Mm. We see that time and time again. Or they're applied in a really haphazard manner. So they either, not to specification, they're not the appropriate type of collar. So they're not going to be effectual Mm. anyway. So that is one issue. Obviously we have issues where people are just drilling things through walls and putting, (laughs) putting, you know, different types of, you know, pipes or wiring, you know, know, there might be a trade that comes in, needs something through, going through. And then you're exposing, you're having a hole there that mm. needs to be closed up and it needs to be fire rated. That's another big issue. And that would just be pure ignorance, wouldn't it? Well, it shouldn't be. You'd think these sorts of yeah, trades right. should, should understand, understand yeah. this. But with in relation to the fire separation, which is this sort of passive fire system that we are most concerned about, and we've seen this in, you know, come about in relation to the Grenfell fire in particular. Mm. Yeah. So each apartment is should have fire-resistant barriers right around their apartments Mm. so that if a fire starts in your home, in your apartment, for example, it doesn't spread or the, or it's the fire is suppressed. So Mm. it takes longer to burn through to another apartment. So it's a very much a safety protective mechanism within these apartments so that fires aren't raging through if you've got a bad fire. Now the concern is, is that sometimes the proper rated firewalls aren't put around the buildings properly, around yep. the apartments properly to contain the fire. So it's just using normal sort of, you know, chipboard or plasterboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there is a fire, it will move quickly through it. It's the same with your fire doors. Yep. You know, if you don't have self-closing lockings or the proper doors on there, the fire will just go out. Or they're wedged open. Exactly. Or they're wedged yeah. open. Mm. And so that's what we saw mm. with Grenfell, that the self-closed lockers on the fire doors were taken off. Yeah. And when people left, they opened the door, the door was left open and the fire just rushed through. It's inconvenient so having a heavy door that keeps closing after you. Yes. Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to protect you. <laughs> that's the thing, though. I mean, I don't want to use Grenfell as an example because I think that's, you know, it was a tragedy and yeah. people died. But yes. do you think that, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, I guess one of your worries with writing the report is that it might only 
get a little bit of airtime, and then we go back to watching Married at First Sight and getting on with our lives. We it, we don't take it serious. Yeah. Do you think that um you know it's the reason why we aren't taking Opal Tower was a bit of a tragedy. It's no one died. Yeah. You know you know Mascot Towers was a tragedy. No yeah. one died. Do you think yeah. that that's what the government needs to really take action and actually change things for the future? Well, I think so. I mean, I mean, if you if you actually sort of look, I think, you know, past behaviour always dictates future behaviour, doesn't mm. it? So if we look at what's happened with the combustible cladding in this country and we had the La Crosse fire in 2014, the Victorian government started auditing properties in that state to see how many buildings had this ACP, mm. uh, the combustible cladding, on it. And then, of course, not long after that, we did have the Grenfell fire and that's when every other state started to open their eyes. And so we had, you know, there's never been these sorts of fires in mm. the other states, but mm. everyone is legislating in relation to this product and making sure that there's, you know, going through these audits to see what buildings have this combustible cladding on it. So that wasn't, you know, we've had two fires in Melbourne, mm. didn't, that's right, we had a number of other safe safeguards that were very different mm. to Grenfell mm. um, in these particular contexts in Melbourne. So everyone was able to get out. It's been mm. a huge inconvenience and a huge cost to those people. Yeah. Um, but we haven't seen that sort of, we haven't yep. seen death. Mm. But the Grenfell fire really was, I think, you know, a bit, of a, like, a, a bit of a catalyst for yep. it. I think what's happened here and, and you know, I think when I finished this report, I thought, yes, people might be interested in it for a little while. I yep. never knew that this would be, um, you know, the discussion that would continue for such a long time. And I'm yep. so happy that it actually mm. has. Yep. And I speak to the media regularly and the, the conversation is still happening. Mm. And I suppose the concern for me around it is that um, buyers in particular, We've been socialised, I think, in this country in particular, as in a lot of other countries, yep. that home ownership is a is something that we should strive for. It's yep. a measure of success yep. and it's also um, a security for us. Mm. Yeah, you know, exactly. To have that home is a... So it's, it's, it's a commodity that we are looking for. And I yep. think there's, in our nature, when, when we're, we're trying to obtain that. So I think we also think that these things aren't going to happen to me. Yep. If I go and get a lawyer... And, you know, I get some advice from some good people and, you know, I try and look at, you know, the building or the builder and make sure that they're, you know, they're reputable or, yep. you mm -hmm. know, a builder that's been around around for a long time. I'm going to be okay here. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, you know. and, and that's too hard to comprehend. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And I think people just think, well, it's not going to happen to me. It must be happening to other people. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, and then it can come and kick them in the butt real quickly, to be quite frank. Yeah. Of course. You know, there has to be a lot of due diligence undertaken by a purchaser before buying into or con contracting um, with a seller in relation to these sorts of um, products. And it's not easy to do this due diligence. I mean, we do it. We we do due diligence. But in my team, what I often say is, like, we have to ask all the questions, know the questions to ask, and if we can't get the answers, we have to tell the client we can't get the answers and the client needs to make a decision with their eyes wide open because getting all the answers is often impossible. Well, especially with off-the-plan off sales, mm. um, very, very difficult. You cannot know everything when you're mm. going into this. It is a leap of faith and it's, a, to me, a bit of a scary leap of faith. Yeah. When you've got an existing building that may have been around for, you know, more than 10 years, you can do a lot of due diligence. You can, so, but if you want to check on the build, like look at Mascot Towers, yes. for instance, 12 years and they started sinking into the ground. And and so we changed our, pro. you know, from now basically any building built after 1999, we do additional searches on. 
finding the information on builders and developers and yeah, it's really, really hard to find. Mm. It is mm. very difficult. Mm. It's, it is really, really difficult. Mm. And so, um, in, but I suppose it's like anything that you mm. buy, you can't know everything about it, you know, but you do need to make sure that you, um, if you're signing, before you sign a contract, when you're thinking about buying a property, you need to go and get some legal advice to ensure that you've got some good special conditions put into your contract mm. as some safeguards in relation to investigation and due diligence that mm. you need to undertake. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. possible though in a rising market is it especially when you've got auctions and those yeah. sorts of things that yeah. people are going off and just mm. buying like that it is very very it, it, it's quite scary to do yeah. it but if you've already been to someone um, well if you want to safeguard yourself this is what you need to do yeah it's, I, it's look, just, I agree it's, yeah yeah it's just something you have to do mm. so if you're in the market and you know that there's a lot of properties that you're interested in that are going for auction go and speak to your solicitor so that perhaps you can on the day get those sort of special clauses put into into a contract if you can. Mm, they yeah. might there might be other buyers there. You might be, but it's a safeguard for you to make sure that you can undertake some uh, undertake some really good due diligence. Mm. Make sure that you've got a good solicitor who understands this particular property type mm. and the issues that are impacting it. Not all conveyances and certainly not all property lawyers understand some mm. of the issues that impact this property type, mm. and you need to spend the money to do it. Yep. And so one of the things that I think is impacted upon. Um, purchases, decisions and getting the right information is, you know, sort of what was it now, I suppose 12 or 13 years ago when sort of we had the rise of cut price conveyances mm, in our yep. markets and real estate agents would constantly tell purchasers that, you know, your legals are going to be, you know, four or five, six hundred bucks with a few, you know, yep. outlays and that mm. sort of thing. Now that's just insane. Mm. When you are buying an apartment that's six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, you should be investing in getting good proper legal advice, even if it costs two or three, four thousand dollars to know exactly what you're getting you're getting yourself into. You need to spend the money to get the right advice. There's limits to what the lawyers can do as well. I mean, because there's there's other things that need to be looked into when you're buying a property. Mm. But you know, that's that's at a bare minimum, really. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And so there's information and disclosures that can be looked at. Mm. But then there's also an understanding of this property market. Mm. And so for people that are strata lawyers or are in a firm with strata litigators that see this type of what the end result of buying Mm. into this is constantly, they can then give you some advice about, you know, what potentially can be the, you know, the problems associated with this building type. Yeah. So... People might just need to be a little bit yeah. more careful then. I think um, the yeah. issue with due diligence is it's a point in time, right? So I, you know, looking yeah. at a property in January 2020 and I'm out there, everything, I do all my due diligence, I get the law, we, you know, get everything checked, everything's fine, you move in. That doesn't mean everything's fine. You know, and I think that <laughs> the problem is you now start getting water issues then yeah. you've got all the issues where no one's protecting well, the you. the neighbour lodges a DA. Well, that's the day it. day after you move in. Yeah. All these sort of issues can pop mm. up. And so it's just that people don't really understand the risk you know, that they're going, if, if things mm. change, if, exactly if you buy right. a older apartment, let's say, and 
something, you know, the, the, the risks aren't there because yep. there's only so many things that can potentially change. Yeah. I think the interesting point that's happening now though, is that I think consumers are starting to switch on. I don't know about you, Veronica. I think a little bit, it's, it's yeah. been on the, the news and a lot of them are going to go buy old apartments and they're all rising in value yes. because there's not enough supply. Yes. And then all the people who aren't buying those are now going back to these new apartments out of desperation and FOMO. So, yes. And then they're kind of just not doing the due diligence again. So I feel like, you know, we just got a shortage of housing. So how are we actually going to solve the problem, which is a shortage of housing, mm. um, and still build quality buildings? Like what is your, what's the solution? <laughs> do, do you have wow. utopia? <laughs> That's I mean, a big question. <laughs> what is, yeah, I mean, exactly. So what are yeah. some of the things that you think that, you know, besides actually just lifting standards for builders, like what are some of the real, like 80%, like the 20% of things we can do to get 80% of the results? Like. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the affordability question is a big question and it's not really my area of expertise. I can talk about, you know, the defects issues and around quality. Um, the building defect stuff has been allowed to fester for way too long. So now we've just got a very big wound and it is going to take a long time to fix. Mm. So it's a, a couple of Band-Aids, um, a few, you know, changes to the law or a few practice changes yeah. is not going to fix this long-term. Mm. Govern, it, it's, it's, it's an all-in approach. It's a holistic all-in approach. Everyone that is involved in the construction mm. industry needs to come together and try and work out a solution moving forward. The problem is we are going to have, as we've got currently, mm. um, apartments that have got problematic defects. Mm. The next few years that will continue Mm. because we haven't, we can't do anything to stop it at the moment. Yep. Mm. And so we've got a lot of people, especially government, looking at future stock, how to stop this in the future, yep. the timeline in relation to that. Yep. And there's lots of moving parts because it's a complex issue because it's been allowed to fester for so long. Yeah. Yep. And so that is a concern for me that um, we are going to have problematic properties still coming onto the marketplace tomorrow, mm. next week next year well that's it because it's not just the legislation nothing's changed right the builders are still working you know old rules nothing's changed and so new legislation is not going to be around for years because reality is there's so many conflicted interests in there and no one <laughs> wants to take ownership and even i'm not going to change my process if you don't change your process right mm, and well, so yeah. everyone's just going to delay it so there's moving parts states are doing things differently yeah and also you know there's a danger in enacting legislation really, really quickly without proper evaluation. Yep. And this is what we see time and time again, mm. and it's a bit of a bugbear of mine, that what yep. we are doing is we're not evaluating the current situation well enough to find out what has gone wrong mm. so that then we can craft a better narrative through our legislation moving forward to make a change. Yeah, that's And right. so what's happening, and we've seen this with the combustible cladding issue, is that many estates are putting in legislation very quick, quickly, very limited consultation period, and they, on the surface, look really great. Mm. Yeah. But we don't know what actually, whether it's going to have the effect, the desired outcome that we want from our laws. Yep. And so <laughs> it is a slow process in a way mm. to get to where we want. Yes, there has to be some stop measures. We need to do something to stop the water coming into these buildings. Yep. Something has to happen soon about that. But there are so many moving parts in this whole discussion about building defects mm. that it will take some time to get this right. It will take some time to really fix, you know, mm. to, cl to clean up this massive, you know, wound that's been developed. So and it's really hard too because, you know, certainly individual buyers, you've got bigger, I mean, we had um, 
CEO of Fraser's. Mm. I'm mental blank. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Rod Ferring, right? Yep. Yeah, Rod Ferring that we interviewed and and the poor thing. I mean, actually, I, all right, <laughs> I read the intro and he was like, oh, I'm not really sure what this is going to be mm. like. But we wanted to interview him because he's like obviously one of the big players. We want to understand what are the big players, what are the, the you know, the, the corporates that are actually have a brand and have a desire to actually build quality product, what are they thinking about the whole thing? Well, the thing is I think it's a great opportunity for them to step up. Mm. Yeah. I think it's the perfect opportunity for them to go to the market mm. and say, we understand this is an issue, we understand there's a concern, be really honest and open about mm. what has gone on in the industry, yeah. but make it very clear about what they're going to what do practices to are. ensure mm. that their purchases are going to buy a safe product. Mm. So they need to ta- make internal changes if they need to. Yeah. And, and then all... they can market that. Yeah. They, can, they are in the best position now to go out there, the big players here, the tier ones, and yeah. say, we understand that there are concerns. They're real concerns. We have seen it in the marketplace mm. because they would have. But this is what we're going to do to make sure that what you're buying is a safe building without these sort of systemic yeah. defects. Perfect opportunity because for them to stand we talk, up. We talk about developers, um, you know, really needing to have that duty of care for an extended period of time. And it would be amazing, wouldn't it, if one of those developers stood up and said, right, we're going to do it. It hasn't been legislated yet, but we're going to do it. I well, think the problem with that is, though, that there's such slim margins in development. It's not like this big cash cow, you know, every development makes a lot of money. Like some of them actually lose money. Some of them, you know, you think that they're making lots and lots of profits, but it's only because they're doing lots of volume. And so if, you, if you're going to say to them, okay, yep, you need to take care of this building for, say, 10 years, no insurance company is going to want to go anywhere near it because they don't want to insure these buildings. That's why there's no insurance is because mm. no insurance company wants to go near it. But <laughs> there's actually there's not enough profits in them. And so what developers are going to say, well, I'm actually not going to do it. The only way I'm going to do this is if I make more profits. And so developers will just pull out of the market because it's not worth the risk. So it kind of that affordability thing, doesn't it? Because this is, I mean, it's a short-term thinking to think we want to keep apartments affordable. I don't know, you're probably yeah. going to go down the tax angle in a minute, are you? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's just um, that the, the reality is like, so the developers like trying to run a business and then yeah. again, there's only a small mm. margin. They they know that there's these, these risks. The more that they put in to make better quality buildings, the less profit there is, the less time. And so I think a lot of developers will just pull out of the market. Um, and then we just got this problem where there's no one building. Do you think it, in it? Oh, I, I, no, I don't think so. I don't think that will happen. I think, I think that, you know, we're in a market where, you know, um, property ownership is still, still such a, you know, so king. And I think in these urban areas in particular where, you know, the, you know, the cost, the, the purchase price is so very high. Mm. Um, you know, for years we've been building good quality buildings. There's people out there building good quality buildings. Yeah, they're not all um, doing it, it. It's not just simply yeah. that the cost of buildings is so expensive and therefore they've had to, you know, do things, you know, scrimp along the way and, you know, do shoddy work yep. to be able to make some profit. There are builders and developers out there doing really great stuff mm. yep. that don't have these issues that are going back. So this is not... Yep. Every single person in this industry, I don't mm. believe it for a minute. And so I think obviously, you know, the, the high end of town have got lots of, have got, have got those safeguards already. Mm-hmm. They know, feasi- they know, you know, they undertake these great feasibility studies. They know what they can do. Yep. And, and their reputational capital here is right on the line. And so I would be calling on these, you know, the big, the bigger end of town, the tier ones, the good yep. quality builders. And we know that they're out there. Mm. To be the ones that are standing up to say, come and buy from me and these are the safeguards I've put in place mm. to ensure that you are not going to get the lemon at the end of the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, look, 
Just wandering around some buildings, it's so quick how some of them show signs. Mm. You know, just in water. I drove past a building the other day and, I mean, look, it's not, it's probably 10 years old maybe, and all the paint, there's this like sheets of Mm. paint peeling off the front. Well, it's obviously been filling up with water for a period of time to the point where Literally sheets of paint coming yep. off. You think yep. that's sort of not you can, really. And you can see them. If you, if you drive around, it is very clear to see them. You can see the, the discoloration of mm. the paint, which mm. paint's a really important protective mm. mechanism on mm. a, um, a protective element on a building. And so you can start to see that. You see the efflorescence, so you see that white stuff yeah. bleaching out of the mm-hmm. building, which says water, water, water. And then you start to see corrosion of certain elements. Yeah. You you can see, you can you can drive past buildings mm. and you can see all these sorts of things. And some is, really thin you know, slabs. Yes. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what's code. I'm presuming that they are the absolute minimum, but, like, it's quite shocking sometimes. Well, I think the whole slab's got to be set for you know, a certain amount of weeks when you go up each level. Mm. And so you look at a building and it's like 20 levels and it goes up in 10 weeks or so-and-so. And And you're like, well, technically every level is meant to be two weeks set. And then, so, you know, even they're going up way too fast because the concrete's not even set. Exactly. There's all these time pressures. Time pressure is a big thing because it's all about, you know, ensuring you get it finished you know, get get the money in, you know, affect settlement okay when the sun so that shines. you can pay off the debts and that sort of stuff. Of course, there's pressures in relation to these. Well, sorts you, of you've also got there's developers that build, and you've got developers that contract a builder, and so then you've got the builders got uh, got time um, time limits in terms of their contract, and so if they go over time, exactly. And if there's a delayed yeah, there's one area, mm. this is what we see in relation to the um, the waterproofing membrane issue in particular is because that needs to dry. And so, but of course you may have the tilers that are in coming in for the job. They have been, you know, a number of months out being, that was going to be their time frame to do it. Yep. They've got another job to do. So it's like, oh, well, it's sort of, it's nearly there. <laughs> Let's go in and start putting <laughs> yep. the tiles down. And then of course it, 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 it breaks up a rupture of them, uh, yeah. the membrane. So. Mm. Yep. So I think um, in terms of like the building industry per se, when did it all start really going wrong? Because I think, you know, there was legislation change. So if you're going to like potentially protect yourself a little bit, should you avoid buildings you think from a certain year where you think that it started to get much, much worse? Yeah, well, I mean, there's others that have sort of started to pinpoint more exact exact to me. I haven't gone back historically and looked at everything, but people have generally said over the last sort of 15 years it's really been that's mm. where this has mm-hmm. become more problematic. And I've sort of seen that in my own experience as a researcher and having these conversations about these complicated defects yeah. over that sort of know, 10, 15-year period. So that seems to be where this sort of thing started to arise. But don't forget in that period of time there may be buildings where people have taken um, a lot of action to fix the defects. Mm, And so there's good buildings out there. It's not that just any building that's been built in the last 15 years is problematic. There would be buildings out there that may have had defects early on Mm. but had had gone through a good rectification process and now they are really great buildings. And that's the point, a good rectification process as well because I've seen some shockers. Absolutely. (laughs) And one of the issues for people that are doing rectification is getting good legislation, regulation or guidance for them. Mm. So the National Construction Code, and not to get too deep about this, mm. but that is that is the minimum standards technical code to which we build in this country. Mm. Every state has adopted it through their building legislation. And so that is the, that is the instrument that we look to to give us how we build these types of buildings. Yeah. It gives minimum mm. standards. Unfortunately, they're minimum standards. They're not best practice standards, but that's an argument for another day, I yeah. think. <laughs> the next question I was going to ask, so we're saying that next 
There's a, there are no, good. We're talking about sorry the rectification where oh, it yes. was good yes, rectification right. or bad rectification. That's right. Yeah. So the National Construction Code is for new builds. So when you are building something, that's what you look for. Mm. If you are having to go back and rectify, there is not a lot of guidance or standards ah. to look at to go through that process. Right. So if you are the if you are the specialist coming back into these buildings and you are having to rip up the tile and the membrane and then go through the building process of taking that off and then applying it again, it's very different from what you start when you start a building. Right. And so that can be a little bit of a problem and that's what we've seen in a country like New Zealand with the leaky building crisis mm -hmm. where some of those buildings are on their third iteration of leaks. Oh my it's God. because the process to do it hasn't been in, hasn't been sort of mm. set out well enough for that to to, to be fixed, really. So in financial advice, there's been a lot of um, misadvice, right? And all the banks are getting sued and putting billions and billions of dollars into, you know, funds to kind of rectification of all these people who have had poor advice um, and, you know, basically refund of fees, losses, et cetera. Is there talk of um, within the building industry that, you know, if you're talking 15 years of building um, and, you know, you've got all the big names in there, small developers, overseas developers, et cetera, um, this is true. It's how much are we talking? Hundreds of billions of dollars of. Oh, that that is that that is the question. Yeah, that is the question. And so um, we don't know. We have yeah. no idea how big this is. And so if we look to something like um, you know the Victorian government has you know put a fund together for six hundred million dollars yeah. to fix <laughs> the combustible cladding issue in Victoria. Yeah. Now the problem with that, and I think this is start, going to be starting, you're going to see this in the media in the next you know, few days. I think there was something in there today yep. or yesterday as well about this, is that what happens is when you're removing the combustible cladding from a building, then you may be exposing a whole heap of defects that have been sitting <laughs> behind there. Yeah, the Chinese wiring that they weren't meant to use. Yep, the oh. infinity wiring. Well, it'll be an issue with the – it could be with the um, – the barriers, the fire barriers yeah. in the buildings, you might be seeing what's actually behind there. Pandora's box. Filing's not great. Could be that, you know, depending on where the cladding sits, you may have to take the tiles off yeah. and the membrane might might then be exposed oh. and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's sort of a wait to see how much this actually ends up costing. Um, but, I, I mean, it, it's hard to know at this stage. I think that's sort of probably the yeah. next iteration of research. But I have been to schemes, medium-sized schemes, mm where they're up to over $10 million in rectification costs. Yeah, just one building. One building, less than 50 lots. And, yep. and yeah, and that's been, And all of it's yep. been is at this stage about water stuff, so it's about the membranes on the balcony yep. and the internal wet areas have had to be redone. And, of course, when you start digging around, then they've gone, oh, dear, there's some fire safety issues here, so yep. they're going to have to go it again. Now, at the end of the day, and this is probably um, comes back to, you know, something that you asked earlier, is once you get to a point where you have the rectification people in and that all gets cleaned up, if you get good ones, yeah. then you probably have a really good building. Yeah. Mm. You have a building. In the interim, a lot of people may have gone bankrupt because they yeah. can't yeah. afford the levies. Yeah. But people coming in that might be able to get it cheap probably get a good property. Yeah, so there's probably an opportunity <laughs> there for those people who are wanting to buy. And the good oh. the, the problem with that is, though, that – um. Even if you do all the rectification works, you're just kind of getting it back to status quo. Correct. And you're not, you're not adding you've got value to take to... a take a, a leap of faith that that or the, the organisations that did 
the rectification worker any better than the developer in the first well the building well the exactly place, so, so if, if you're if you're a savvy buyer or investor yeah. and you've got a bit of cash and you know how much all these rectification the totality of the rectification costs are going to be and you can work that out and you're willing to take that little bit of a risk yeah. well then it might pay off for you are you well, investing the, that way no i'm not <laughs> no. i think that it makes sense the problem is when you go and sell it like if you for example let's say you get a car right mm. and the something goes on the car and you go and get it fixed, you spent $10,000, you've still just got a car that's, it, it, you, that money's lost, right? That mm. money's just gone, right? And it's the same sort of thing with this building. Like just getting the building back to repaired, when someone goes to sell that, they don't really look at it and go, well, you've spent all this money on rectification works. Yeah. They just look at it as a new apartment. Yeah. And, you know, they don't really look at all those details. So when you go to sell it, they just say, well, it's a two-bedroom apartment. You know, it's worth roughly 600 You don't actually ever get a premium for those oh, rectifications no. work. Yeah. So. You know, you just got to be extremely careful because what you're doing is you're just literally throwing money away. And we're talking like hundreds. I, I, you know, if you think about this, the property market is about seven trillion, um, and that's you know the whole market. And then if you look at the apartment markets, maybe three, and then you look at that apartment market, maybe one or two of that is new buildings. Yeah. And then of those is very high, you know, defect rate in those buildings. So, you know, six hundred million from the state government's not even going to repair like 50 buildings. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think this issue is just, and you know, that's great for the economy to do all these rectification works, but <laughs> the people it's going to hurt is all the owners, right? That's exactly right. And, yeah. And it's exactly right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that actually, because you've spoken to so many and you've spoken to lawyers that have mm -hmm. helped them and, and there's been some harrowing stories. What are some of the ones that really stood out for you? I mean, I just I want it to be a cautionary tale. You know what I mean? I want yeah. people to take it seriously. Yeah. I think it's always going to be the people that, um, have really saved young families, I think, that have really worked hard to save their deposit mm. yep. um, to get their little, you know, slice of paradise. Um, often not, you know, in a city. They might be on the fringes or mm. fringes or they might be, you know, further up the coast and that sort of thing. And they've, you know, got their deposit. They found the apartment that's going to be, you know, suitable for their first place for their family. Yep. Um, they've had to, you know, the mortgage is, is quite big. They don't yeah. have a lot of equity. Yeah. They don't have a lot of anything else sitting they around. 10% deposit. May, yeah. may not have a lot of support from family to be yep. able to get themselves out of these issues when it comes. Yep. And so, you know, they're working hard day mm. to day, pay the mortgage, pay the bills, you know, have a nice life. And then they get hit with this. Yeah. And there is no way for them to get out of it. Mm. They can't get out of it. They don't have the equity to be able to do anything in their property. No. And they their only option is to sell sell cheaply, they've created a debt, often go bankrupt because they can't service, you know, the debt oh, that's left. That's exactly right. And yeah. so that, that to me is heartbreaking. the heartbreaking mm. story here that um, so when you're buying into this and, and for so many years and it really annoys me this conversation around that, you know, apartments are the cheap way to go. Mm. That's the, you know, for people that are young, you know, get into an apartment, you know, yep. it's the cheapest type of property and that yep. sort of thing. It's not. It is a costly vehicle. Yeah. And so <laughs> when you go into an apartment that's got all the facilities, pools, gyms, yep. lifts, yep. if it's a big building, it is a costly endeavour. Yep. And you have to have the surplus funds mm. to be able to weather that storm, just the, the weekly levies that you yep. have, plus if anything comes up in relation to the defects, plus anything comes up in relation to how they were initially structured. Mm. Yep. So oftentimes the developer will have a price point fixed for the levies 
weekly yeah. that are very much under budget. Yeah. And so you may go, yep. you know, you might find a lovely unit that's $500,000. This is great. 60 or $70 a week for your levies. And within two yep. years, that will be 110 to 120 yep. for sure. And so you need mm. to be able to weather those storms. And so you do need to have surplus money there when you're buying into these sorts of properties. I think it's really good advice because I think that's um, exactly what's happened in 2016, 17. I think the state government have stitched up, you know, Lots of first home buyers. Um, it's not just state government, it's parents, it's sister, you know, brothers and sisters, it's you know, people, your mates at your soccer football club, it's everyone's just saying, they get on the market, up. just yeah. buy something. Um, you know, you can't go wrong, property goes up and you know, they buy an apartment, they even this government five percent deposit mm. scheme, mm. like what what are they their first home buyers and their singles or their young couples, they have to buy something under seven hundred thousand. Yeah. What does mm. that buy them in Sydney? An apartment. Yeah. Okay, so what, what type of apartments can they buy? Well, they can't buy the good apartments because they're more than 700. Yeah. So they're all buying these new apartments yeah. with yeah. 5% deposits. Yeah. Um, because interest rates are low, you know, and you've got parents that will say, oh, just, you know, when we when yep. we started yeah. out, you know, and so this is the rhetoric that's constantly being told to new players in the mm. market and they have, to, they have to tread, you know, very carefully. I well, think. that's it because they think they're only risking 5%. So they've got they 30 grand in the with negative equity. Yeah, they've they got won. 50 grand, let's say. Mm. Um, they've saved hard. It's hard to save 50 grand. You've got to earn 100 grand. I've right? never so, in my life saved you know, 50 grand. <laughs> it's um, seriously tough. They I've get made that. it, but I haven't saved it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. And they're <laughs> it probably, um, I mean, even a client recently, you know, borrowing a bit of money from the brother and the parents, yeah. right? And yeah. so no, that's okay because they can afford it and they want to help. But like, let's say they buy this apartment at 95% through mm. this government scheme. They think they're only losing 5%. It can't go wrong. Mm. They're not paying stamp duty. Yep. So they're going in, well, this is a free ticket. Yeah. And they buy this apartment and then bang, the defects issue happens. Yep. Or ba they didn't mm. do their due diligence. Or yep. the, they have to sell it in two years' time and it's only selling for 550 and they'll lose, they're going to negative. And so I think that not many people want to talk about that because no. they just want to kind of talk up the market and hide these stories. So I think it's a very good story. Of course, and, it, and it's not to say that people can't enter the market. They might just have to do it a different way. Yeah. They might have to mm. think about thinking differently about what it means to own property. I think maybe gone are the days for a lot of people, especially in an urban area, where an individual or two people can just come together and, and buy these sorts of units from scratch. Mm. Mm. It may be, you know, thinking about property ownership in a different way. Yep. It might be mm. looking at, you know, syndicates or different ways, I'm not sure, but yep. just looking differently about yep. what it means to own property if that's what you want to put your money into. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a, that's yep. a topic for another interview <laughs> yep. or report. Yeah. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Nicole, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, so um, I haven't practised for a long time, so I'm not speaking to purchasers all the time. Mm. But I think for me the biggest thing is um, around the issue of trust. Mm -hmm. I think um, we as a society, and I think it's a good thing, I think it's a good thing about our natures mm. is mm. that we trust people. Mm. Yeah. But what is happening constantly is um, buyers coming into the market are trusting what the real estate agent is saying to them. They're trusting the promotional material that's provided to them. Yep. They're trusting the banks about what they're – and they're mi there's misconception about the role of what a bank is. And mm, so I did a research project a number of years ago where I spoke to a lot of people, and these weren't young people, these people that had bought property before, and they said, well – you know, the bank was required, they required me to give them the contract. So 
I sort of thought that they knew. So they, it, it would be all good thumbs up from them because they gave me the money. I'm like, they're not looking at the intricate details mm. of the property. No. Um, and so, but they're trusting that because mm. I've also got a solicitor or a conveyancer involved, yep. that I'm okay, that I'm protected, that there is enough consumer protection law out there that will safeguard me mm. from what I'm getting myself into. And that is a really big mistake Yeah, because it's you, awful, isn't it? It is awful. Yeah. And so yeah. I think... I think probably the dumbness of all of us really is mm. that we are so trusting that if we engage professional people, that we will ultimately be safeguarded and we will not get ourselves into this sort of mess. Yes. And I think the issue there is that engaging professional people is great, but what we realise that buying property is complex and there's more than one professional you need to engage. Yeah. You know, you do, you need to... You have to do your due diligence on the people that you're engaging with yeah. as well. Yeah. And so, you know... Uncle Mick's friend who's the family lawyer around oh, the corner that occasionally a does a conveyance yep. is not the person to help you with this sort of complex property yep. um, purchase. Yeah. Simple yeah, as that. It's exactly right. So, I mean, you've got to, the experts do exist out there and who are you can trust, but, you know, you, that's where you've got to do your due diligence, right? You've yep. got to really go and pick these people, check what they're doing. And, yep. and then also be always sitting a bit devil's advocate with them a little bit, you know, making sure, double checking what they're saying doing your own research, um, you know, because if you have picked the wrong one, yep. you've got to like sometimes stop yourself, right? So, Well, the you problem know, often is that you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. you go through this exercise, then you find out the hard way, and yeah. then the next time you'll do differently. Yeah. yeah. But you, have to invest, cost, yeah. you have to mistakes. invest the time mm. in doing the research yourself. And, you know, it's awful. No, everyone just wants to be able to go to the yellow, the yellow pages. Man, <laughs> oh, I'm showing your, your age there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and find the person with the, you know the the rate the star enough stars that you can mm. yeah. really, but you, but you this is a, this is a big property transaction so mm. you need to spend some time before you start looking into the market about who who are your people to go to I know and look Perfect. you know in in my business particularly with conveyances for instance or lawyers property lawyers you know I honestly you know we've had a couple that we've been using for a number of years but over the years we've churned through them because the, you know they quite often drop the ball. It's, yeah. it's a really, you have to have a passion for it, I think. Absolutely. You really care. And, well, you know, law yeah. schools don't teach, you know, don't ha often have a unit or a whole course on strata title. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So often, you know, as a, law, as, a, as a lawyer myself, you know, when I went through law school, I think we talked about strata titling for maybe 20 minutes. So you yeah. learn the hard way, you learn on the job. It's, it's oh, yeah, and it's, it's a specialised area. Mm. And so unless you're really in it. You know, there's so many complexities to it that yeah. just a generalist in property law wouldn't be across those mm. issues. And so, you know, that, that's just, that's, you know, we're living yeah. in a much more sophisticated property market now. Unfortunately, yeah. I, I don't really go too hard on saying, look, you have to use our conveyance when we're, we're doing loans, et cetera. I just, mm. you know, kind of just, it's not really, I say, look, we've got someone here and, you know, sometimes I don't even, I just don't even think about it referring, right? But yep. just recently in the last few months, we've just had to say, we, can you please use our conveyancer? Because the amount of times mm. we've had problems where almost missing settlements, et cetera, where the conveyance just got no idea, like how to even actually it works, how do the bank's going to fund it, um, you know, not checks happening, et cetera. So, you know, and that's because the consumer actually just goes online and just picks a 990 all inclusive um, and asks it, you know, they kind of create their own problems. Thank you so much for today. It's Pleasure. been very, very good and it's a very important chat that I hope sticks around for as long as possible. Oh, absolutely. Yes, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... We talked a lot about strata and apartments and we talked a lot about fire as well. And I just thought we might mention 
things that you have to think about when you're buying houses when it comes to fire. And look, it's just a small one, but if you're buying a semi-detached house or a terrace house in inner Sydney or Melbourne, I'm not sure if there are any in Brisbane, you know what? Something is missing from a lot of the roofs of those houses. And if they've never been renovated, that maybe they don't have firewalls up in the attics. So I've had situations where people have been able to go in through a manhole in one terrace and actually appear through the manhole of another terrace. (laughs) (laughs) So look, obviously over time there's less and less of this happening, but it is something to look for if you are buying one of these properties where you've got an adjoining wall and you've got, uh, you know, a a roof or an attic, a roof space, an attic space, to uh, get up there and have a look. Or if the building inspector's gone and had a look, make sure that they've actually commented and confirmed that there is actually a firewall between the properties. Because if you had one go up in flames, the fire can travel along the roof cavity and basically burn down the entire row. Please join us for our next episode when we launch our 2020 bull or forecaster report. We've researched all the predictions from last year and we can tell you the gold star predictors were and who the dumbos were. And we review the property market and we discuss the things that really no predictor can take into account. We also look 10 years back to really uncover whether hotspotting is something that investors should be paying any attention to or not. So the results are very interesting. There's a mixed bag in there, so we encourage you to join in. And as of April Fool's Day, you'll be able to download the report as well. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.